Well, hello and welcome to the latest Forever Blue podcast with me, Ian Cheeseman. And tonight, because we're in the winter break, where the team have all jetted off to Abu Dhabi for a rest for a while, uh, there isn't a match to particularly discuss. So I thought it was a good opportunity to have a catch-up with uh, Mark Todd, who's our representative, one of our representatives on the City Matters Committee, who's always championing all things off-field. So there'll be less chat about on-field and a lot more chat about off-field. And I'm very conscious of the fact that, in this podcast, I mean, of course, I'm very conscious of the fact that we will be probably talking about a lot of things very practical about going to games and attending games. And I know there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast, which I'm very grateful for, who are not lucky enough to be able to go to games for one reason or another, either because of where they live or their work circumstances or cost or whatever. And I don't want to exclude you guys from this, um, but obviously I'm not going to apologise for the fact that that's probably where the main focus will be. I hope you'll still find it interesting. Uh, before I talk to the three guys that I've got on, including Mark, of course, I just want to say thanks very much to AMR Development UK, who are the sponsors of the podcast. And they're the people who have built that pyramid. Well, they haven't built it, actually. It was there before, but they've converted it now into a three-level event centre, uh, which looks as if it's stunning. And if you think that um, is, is a big project, and, and I don't say this as a pun, but it is like the tip of the iceberg. I know it looks like a tip of an iceberg because it's a pyramid, but they build such phenomenal buildings and develop um, buildings all around the world. Um, so they are a huge company, and but I really appreciate them helping out. And I was only talking to the other sponsor of the podcast, who are Counting King, who are R&D tax specialists, today about how they're helping a city fan that I know in business uh, and is are going to save them a fortune in R&D tax credits and they also deal with business loans and all that sort of stuff. So I can already see somebody that is a big City fan, who's a fan of the podcast, who supports what we do, benefiting financially. So don't hesitate, if you're in that position, a company, to look up Counting King, Google them, contact them, tell them that I've sent you and they'll try and save you a lot of money. So there you go. Thanks very much to them as well. So... We've got three guests on tonight. We've got Mark Todd, as I say, from City Matters, uh, two of the regular guests in Andy and Tony, who have not only been uh, superb City fans, but also have business heads. So that might come into the equation as well. Um, but I suppose we should start, Mark, by just having a general sort of question to you, really, about, you know, what what are the things that you are most concerned about or dealing with? What are, the, what are City fans talking to you about and I'm guessing that things like Spurs on a Friday night and Brentford on a on a Monday which might move to a Saturday at short notice are two of the things that are, are particularly current at the moment as we're speaking. Yeah a lot of supporters are um, up in arms about the times that the matches are. It doesn't mean people are not going to go actually. Sometimes the first reaction is oh it's a Friday night I'm not going to go to Spurs and then we sell 5,000 tickets in 24 hours. So it kind of makes you think, well, maybe they were always going to go. But I don't think that the uh, authorities cover themselves in glory, making it as difficult as possible for supporters to get there and making it more costly than it needs to be. Some people will have to stay over in London because it's a Friday night game, um, and that's not a cheap thing to do. So they, they kind of don't help themselves. And then, of course, we go and sell the tickets out I imagine we will. I think we'll take the whole allocation in the end. 
um, and they can probably lean on their shovel a little bit and go, well, maybe it wasn't as bad after all. But I do think that we shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, the next round of the FA Cup is going to be a Wednesday night. So if we get through, there'll be a night game somewhere, whether it's at home or away. It is kind of, I feel the pain of, and I'm going to Spurs, so I feel the pain of having to make arrangements to get to London on Friday night. None of us want to particularly do that. But it's kind of the, the life of a football fan if your team's as good as ours and goes a long way in all the competitions. I'm not saying suck it up by any means, but I think organisations like the Football Supporters Association should be getting clubs together who've got a similar problem because we've got we've got the Friday night slot. I think Newcastle are down in London on Saturday night playing Fulham in the same competition. So we're not the... And, and Tottenham's game in the last round was Burnley... Uh, at the uh, Tottenham Stadium. So it's happening a lot, this. And and when people say, I don't think they care about the fans, I don't think it crosses their mind. I don't think the broadcast, the broadcasters who decide, um, but the competition organisers do the deals with the broadcasters uh, and give them like what looks like a free reign to tell everybody when we're watching our football live. The cynical side of me might say, and I've heard other people suggesting this, that certain fixtures are picked for certain times of the day, i.e. a night match or a 12.30 kickoff or whatever, if they think it's particularly attractive to an audience in another part of the world who might might like that. Do you sense that that's ever a factor? Um, I, I honestly don't know enough about about how the broadcasters choose it, but they do sell, uh, they make the most money, I believe, I, I, by selling on the rights to see the games all around the world. And the Premier League and the football teams and City's fantastic team, people want to watch it. So, you know, we only, we play, I, I believe we play our Premier League matches at 12.30 on a Saturday to suit certain audiences in other parts of the world. It's kind of the, I don't like it particularly, but it's kind of the price you pay for the Premier League being the best league in the world with the most resources and the best TV deals, I think. I think the Brentford game, though, is the one that more than anything I look at and I think, well, the, the, if City draw at Tottenham or Brentford draw their uh, fourth round game, sorry, third round game, sorry, no, it's fourth round game, isn't it? Um, then, then suddenly that game with five days notice moves from a Monday to a Saturday. And I thought there were rules against that. That's unforgivable in my view. I mean, the the fact that we sat here, I bought tickets for that game and don't know what day it's been played on. I mean, that seems a bit preposterous to me. We were always told that it was the police who insisted on a minimum of 10 days notice to police a football match, which is why they changed um, replays. So replays in the FA Cup used to be the week, the, the within seven days of the match that had been drawn. And they moved that to 10 days. So it's obviously made a bit of a, a, bit of a lie out of that. I don't. I. I think there should be some kind of standards when it comes to this. I, I'm a big fan of the regulator. I think a football regulator should be brought in. I know a lot of Premier League clubs are not keen on that. I think City were in favour of regulator. I think they're one of the very few clubs that were in favour of a independent football regulator. I think certain things like that, giving fans sufficient notice to be able to make arrangements to go again, should be part of what the regulators do. Before I bring the other two fellas in, uh, on the subject of these two specific fixtures, Spurs and Brentford, I think we can all probably agree that the hand that feed up, feeds us, if you like, TV are the ones who dictate these things. And once you, you're in bed with them, then you lose control. But where City might have some control, apart from 
perhaps canvassing, but wouldn't necessarily expect them to do that, is to help fans get there. And we know that there's a train strike, I think, around about the time of the Brentford game. What's the latest on whether City will either put on transport or subsidise transport or in any way with empathy to the fans who are going to make the journey, make a contribution or support the fans? You know that they're already doing that for the Spurs game. There's the there's yeah, there's coach travel that you can apply for with your ticket, which I think is fantastic. It looks to me like it might even be subsidized because it's only 30 pounds return. So the club have stepped up there and I'm really pleased about that. I actually think Spurs have been pretty reasonable about the pricing of the tickets as well. I think you know, only five pounds more than a Premier League game for adults is good, and I think kids are for a tenner. So that's yeah, this is it's, it's it's helping people around the issue. I think making transport available, additional transport, making it affordable is probably the way to go. I'd be very surprised if we can turn the tide on broadcasters choosing when they want to broadcast matches. I think that uh, that ship sailed. I do I do think that that if we had a regulator overseeing football, they might be able to bring in certain standards so the fans don't get fleeced or don't get. Um, you know, put in a position where they can't get to the game or get home. I'm hoping they can do more in that regard. Well, we'll perhaps come back to, you know, the old 20s plenty or uh, the £30 away Premier League ticket late, later on. But let me bring the other two fellas in, Tony and Andy. You've heard what Mark's had to say there. Um, I, I don't know where you two are at the moment in terms of attending matches and or having views on this, but what, what do you feel? Is it just inevitable that... You know, the, the TV clicks because I believe the next television deal is going to have even more fixtures on Fridays and Mondays and all over the place, odd times. So for match-going fans, this is not going to go away. This is going to get worse and worse, isn't it? Andy? Yeah, well, um, sorry. That's I'll Tony, by the way. That's, that's <laughs> Tony, right. <laughs> um, I think this is, you know... of. I'm a cynic, as you know, and I just don't see this changing. I think we can talk amongst ourselves, talk as a fan base, talk to City Matters and in the supporters club. But I think until the English League, the Premier League, as a fan base come together, we can't change this. TV has ruled football since the dawn of the Premier League, essentially. Um, now, whether they have evening games at set times for internet, I don't think... I'm that cynical. I think some of those, it's just primetime TV, so they get the most money out of advertisers because the international rights are generally already bought and paid for anyway at the season in advance. So from that side of it, I can't see that conspiracy, but it does help them with their revenue. And they're always going to be led by their revenue. However, I think all football clubs should be led by their fans, and it isn't the case because their money doesn't necessarily come from fans. I don't know the exact percentages these days, but the majority of the money isn't like it was 10, 15 years ago, where it was from your match-going fans. It is from your sponsorship. It is from the TV revenues. So they dance to that tune rather than to the fans' tune. And the only way this is going to change is by fans from all clubs, really, um, across the pyramid, especially uh, the Championship and the Premier League, coming together and putting aside their partisanship and coming together to... Well, whether it's a protest, whether it's to campaign for um, with this independent regulator, if it comes in, that's the only way this is ever going to change. Because I think we've had similar conversations personally, me and you, Ian, and you know, on the podcast. I remember a couple of seasons ago, and I just can't see that 
these decisions are ever going to change if not because of the money and you've always got to follow the money now you mentioned coach travel there and this is something our club could do personally i think yeah it's great that they might be doing it for the spurs or they are doing it for the spurs game sorry but then if we care about the fans then why aren't we doing that for at least one coach for every away game in that sense because it will help the cost of going to away games it will get help supporters get there it's not just the case of well it's a half seven at night there's no trains because we'll have half seven at nights and there are trains and they won't do it yet that's still difficult for people getting to games so i think that there's a bigger question there as to can fans put aside their loyalties and come together or is it always going to be point scoring oh you your fans can't sell this your fans can't sell that well if you're looking at away games we can sell away games because if you get let's say 5,000 tickets in an FA Cup game yeah someone who goes to every away game might not go and he'll be rightly pissed off because he can't make it but there's always going to be somebody in that queue with our fan base ready to take it up the same with Liverpool um, Arsenal and most other clubs some of us will struggle but there is always so when they look at the facts and the figures as a club and they go oh well we still sold it what's everyone you know it was a storm and a teacup but it's not it's affecting the fans that love and live and breathe City not saying that the ones that go in the end don't love and breathe City because they've been waiting and itching to go but it's how it impacts them as fans and their opinion of the club it definitely needs to be at the forefront and you know with City Matters that was supposed to be the case of City Matters putting City fans views to the board and going through Danny etc um, I'll let Mark pick up on this uh, uh, lay it down in the podcast but how much of that is just um, a sounding and how much of that is actually taken into account I'd love to know because from an outside point of view where I don't necessarily speak in depth to many City Matters uh representatives for me it seems like it's a bit more of um well we've got city matters so that's how we hear back from our fans and that's it um but yeah as i say i think when it comes to the tv um until the fans can put aside their uh, loyalties unfortunately it's not going to change we saw that with 20 plenty that you mentioned earlier you know um that was a rare occasion that a good chunk of fans managed to come together and try and influence something, not just in, you know, I remember seeing it at the uh, Bayern Munich game, you know, stuff like that. And we're seeing it across the Champions League um, with protests and stuff, but it just doesn't seem to seep into us because all we'll get is the jibes of, oh, you can't do that, or you can't, it needs to come out of that. We need to look at people as fans and what we have as income to be spending on the game that we love and the game that is the game and that, allows TV to sell this because we as fans love it wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in the UK, whoever you support, it only functions by having people in the stadium to play to. You know, we saw that during COVID. It just wasn't there. A lot of players said, oh, well, the atmosphere wasn't great. Obviously, there's no atmosphere, but it wasn't the same as playing in an atmosphere in that sense. And we saw that with some performances, some results. So the fans are crucial, but I think we're always an afterthought in any decision of it's not until they say, oh, well, there's no trains. Oh, well, actually, we'll put some coaches on. Well, if it's that easy, why don't we do it on a regular basis to help fans out, especially with the cost of everything and, you know, cost of living, for example. So, yeah, I think um, there's a big, big question mark on fans and whether the independent regulator is actually going to help um, or whether a vested interest is going to seep in there because they always do. You know, there's always a bit of pressure to be put onto somebody somewhere to help them get what they want. And I sincerely hope that it is independent and it is decisions made um, for the interest of the game and of the fans. Um, you know, it's like with the 
Premier League, for example, every Premier League club has a vote in that sense, but they will vote in their interest, even if down the line it will come back and bite them in the arse, then it doesn't matter because in that moment in time, it's in their interest. And that's what we've got to get away from and have someone that can have a bigger picture. The only reason I'm scared... Yeah, we are. We already we already do have quite a lot of coaches that goes to games. The the club do organise some coaches, but there isn't always the demand for it. And a lot of supporters clubs say coaches. So yeah. I think you've got a great point about seeing how this goes with the because I don't know how what the take up's been. I know ticketing take up's been high, higher than some people expected because we've sold out the first allocation, I believe. So, but I don't know if the if the the coach has been uh, a success or not. I think we should. Look at how successful it was, and and consider doing it when it's required, basically. So the Brentford game on a Monday night, if we do play, then is a good, good another good example. But again, there's not as many fans going. You know, we get less than two thousand tickets for that, so it might the the numbers might not work out. But I think it's worth looking into. We should we should see how successful the Tottenham game is in terms of coaches. I think you're dead right. The club could maybe do more. I know the sports clubs do their bit and they're fantastic um, in terms of the individual clubs, uh, especially my local one, Cheetah, they always have coaches going on. But that's, again, for me, the club pushing the book to them to do it rather than the club, this is what we're doing. So wherever, because not every fan is a member of a supporters club, we've got to bear that in mind as well. Good point. Andy, I mean, you obviously listen to all this um, and I know and um, Tony's thrown a lot in there. What what would you want to pick out of that then and, and centre on from your point of view? I think you the, the paymaster gets what the paymaster gets. I think that's the end of the story when it comes to deciding what's on when. I've just enjoyed a a holiday in a time zone which gave me no opportunity to watch City and Huddersfield at 8 a.m. in the morning. Nowhere's open. Uh in a, on a Caribbean island showing the footy. But when Liverpool Arsenal was on, the place was rammed. So that told me everything about timing of games and teams involved. But I think more concerning uh, is that two things I think that haven't been mentioned, so I won't just go over old ground. There's been a number of games, evening games in London, Champions League games, which have been delayed because teams weren't able to actually get to the stadium on time. So factoring in how long it takes on a Friday evening to get to London, uh, particularly where Tottenham is, good good luck. And I've heard people moaning about the fact that the coaches are leaving at 2 2 p.m. Well, that, that might be tight. You know, I really think that's another factor. I don't know what the rail situation is for the Tottenham game, but... Those of us know that you're going to have to take the day off to travel by train down to London uh, to get to Tottenham anyway. So that rules out anybody who doesn't want to take a day off because really it's not the same as having a home game uh, midweek. Nothing like um, down in London. Um, you know, we saw at Newcastle that that time was about as late as you dare to have it to get really the right kind of atmosphere in the stadium. And I think the game delivered. And the fans delivered, at least uh, at least our end. So I think that's another factor that the actual getting to the games is still something which is just forgotten about in terms of practicalities. Um, and, and I guess for Mark, it's even more of a challenge, you know, because you've got to factor in more time. So, so you know, I think that's that's something which which bothers me when 
these things are, are picked when they are. And I fully understand why it's Friday night. Uh, you know, that's big, big audience out West that's going to follow that game. And good that the ticket prices are where they are. I didn't know that. I think there's obviously been some effort going on there. Well done to the club on that score and the coaches as well. I think that's, that's you know, sugar in the pill a little bit. Um, I can't remember what the other thing was I was going to mention. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was it. So, yeah, selling out uh, 5,000 in 24 hours. So, um, those who go, go. Those who can go because they can't go to away games are already probably waiting for their points level, if they're not in the cup scheme, to come up. And my fear is that we're given the opportunity for 9,000-plus fans in that fantastic stadium, and we're going to have another Charity Shield event. Hmm. It is a possibility, uh, isn't it? And that, that concerns me because of where it is, because of the time it is, that the quality of the support that we will, will will have won't be a multiple of, you know, four times Old Trafford away. It won't. It simply won't. So I think we need to prepare ourselves for that because I think that's what we're going to end up with, judging by the number of people who've asked me for tickets or, or, or those I've seen seeking tickets suggest to me that um, there are a few who've taken the decision not to bother traveling and um i'm on my way back through through london that day so it's not a problem but you know not everyone's in that fortunate position getting back on friday night um is is is, is going to be a stretch but i think most people will try and do it because of the cost involved in um in staying down there so yeah i think it's clear that city have tried their best well done let's see what what the outcome is of the take up on the on, on the travel, it would be interesting to know how many people do travel at that discounted price. It's good value. Um, let's see. But, yeah, I just expect the, the worst now uh, whenever we're in the in the mix. The Brentford thing, the same thing happened at Everton a few years ago, even happened. Um, and I'm not sure it was around for a reason for FA Cup. I only remember because the game was meant to be on my wife's birthday and I wasn't going to go. And then it got moved very, very late in the day to the 31st, and I went. <laughs> I, think, I think Mark probably remembers it as well. So it's not it's not uh, unprecedented for them to do this very late in the day. And I'm not sure that the police really have much of a say anymore. I'm sure they're consulted, but um, they seem to be pretty much adept at uh, organising themselves around the uh, the beck and call of, of, of the FA or, or the league or the clubs or whoever's making the decision. So um, it, it's it's what it is. And One thing I would like to, to just take up is what Tony was talking about before, about uh, fans getting together. You know, we, we see it in other countries sometimes, um, and we've certainly seen in, in Champions League, trying to coordinate. Um, it hasn't happened so far um, the way that perhaps it should do. We saw what happened when Super League was first muted and suddenly there was an uproar and it was across all clubs and suddenly, bam, it happened. I don't know why the... You... Well, the Super League was slightly different, in my opinion, because that was fans saying, I don't want my club in it. It wasn't fans saying, we don't want together. I think it was still individualised. I think that's the issue. And the closest we've got fans of coming together is, and, you know, this is me going back to uh, what I know, but 
the, is the fans for food banks. That's the closest we've seen in recent years of fans clubbing together to help the communities of those clubs. But as soon as you say, obviously, as a city fan, as soon as you say anything about all oh, the treble or whatever, you want that 115 points, it's always going to come down to that rivalry because that's what TVs push, um, you know, in terms of, well, it's a big game, it's this. And they push that rivalry because it then builds up the... Um, tension, it gets them views because it's a big game, it's this and they try that with every fan base regardless and we'll see it, you know, and no disrespect to Burnley, but we'll see it with them, they'll try and say, company comes back, can he do this to City and try and build it up but for, as I say, great respect to Burnley, it's not a derby but they will try and build it because that's how they sell and how they get views, eyes on screens not bombs City, on matters. city Matters is obviously a very specific City group um, but the FSA, the Football Supporters Association, were the ones who successfully campaigned for 20 is plenty for the for the ticket for away games. I don't know what the slogan is now, but it's 30 quid for anybody that doesn't know for the, the 19 away Premier League games. That was a coming together of all the clubs. I don't know whether City Matters would ever be involved in something like that. And I don't even know how long the 30 pound ceiling for Premier League tickets is going to go on for but I personally am so relieved and delighted that it is only 30 I know what it's going to cost and I know that at Arsenal now it would be up near 70 quid for a ticket if it wasn't for that campaign I think City you've got to remember City Matters is actually almost like an internal committee of Manchester City it's not independent so it's not like the organisations which are almost fighting with their own clubs and are separate and and have that kind of voice it's very much the club's committee it's not ours it's their committee and they invite people to stand for election from the fan base and then we almost like advise the club now what we you you get the benefit of being inside the club which means that they talk to you about issues you've got a hotline to them directly if you want to talk and we do a lot of lobbying which isn't kind of promoted very well outside so we try and do statements from time to time to explain to people what we are doing or to take a position on something like, I don't know, uh, price rises for season ticket um, season ticket holders or, or what's going on at the moment with these games with Brentford and, and Spurs. But we're very mindful of the fact we kind of work with the club. We're not, a, we're not a pressure group on the outside trying to pressure them. So you have to use the power that you have. So if you're outside and you're a pressure group, you can probably be a bit more feisty and that's kind of the role. And if you're on the inside, if you're inside the tent, the idea is to make relationships and talk to them and get them to understand what the fans are saying. So I use all my contacts and the and the, the people I know to tell them what's going on because there's no point me telling them what just my view is because I sit in one stand, I go to a match in a particular way. So I take soundings from the fans that I know and feed back themes that I'm finding. So a classic one is actually what's happened with this Tottenham game. As soon as we saw when it was going to be, we were onto the club straight away to tell them that this is going to be difficult for people. All the things that both Tony and Andy have said, we've told the club that's what people are saying straight away. And there, and we asked for, would you look into um, transport arrangements, whatever that might be? We don't necessarily have to tell them what to do. Would you look at additional? What we actually said was additional transport. Didn't talk about the cost at that point. They've come back with this proposal. So either the club were going to do it anyway, or we raised it, or we lobbied them with success. Well, it kind of doesn't matter. 
So we're not. I don't think City Matters are looking for plaudits particularly, but we do use that direct contact with the club to tell them what's going on, and they can make hopefully better decisions. So we don't have a veto on anything, but I think the fact that we've got good relations, good contacts with them, we kind of use that. City's a very well-run club, and the fan base are, on the whole a happy bunch at the moment for obvious reasons. You know, we're not like the Reds over the road who almost hate their own football club. So that's probably why we haven't got um, much of a kind of outside organisation, you know, well, that's like pressure group. Maybe maybe that will come in time. Who knows? Maybe that's needed. But at the moment, I don't really see a big appetite for that. Well, I think we do because we saw it with uh, the 1894 group um, during the Community Shield, which Andy picked up on, where they boycotted it and donated what they would have spent going to the game to Fans for Food Bank. Um, second mention, uh, but yeah, they donated it to Fans for Food Bank over the Community Shield because of the time and the issues and everything else around that. So we do have that external in, a, but they don't show their teeth very often. Um, yeah. when they need yeah. to, they will do, but we the do have bit, it to a degree. The best bit about that for me, it's only my opinion. I'm giving my opinion, so I don't represent City Matters on this. The best thing about that was the support to the organisation. Yeah. I mean, every single City fan, whether you because mm. lots of City fans didn't approve of the boycott. Let's not forget that. Some oh, yeah. thought it was a bad idea, some didn't. But everybody, without question, thought that those fans who didn't go but raised money, either by a donation or holding... I, I, we held a party here on, on that day. We all put money in and sent it in. So people did different things. But the support for the food bank organisation, universally um, loved by all the support. And it felt like the right thing to do for yeah. that game on that day, didn't it? It really it was a good fit. I think Spurs away, if we started to try and do something like it for that, wouldn't go down quite as well. It's a different type like, of game, isn't it? Yeah, completely, completely. I actually think there is something, there is, there is room for an independent voice of City fans, especially as we're talking about match-going fans tonight. I think there is a voice to make make the club realise that they need to, like, to hold the club's feet to the fire a little bit to make sure they look after match-going fans. Because it's they can kind of rely on the match going fans to turn up and buy the tickets and keep coming, and they need to keep they need to keep an eye on how well they treat those and not take them for granted. Now, whether they take them for granted by accident or not it doesn't really matter. I, I I do use all the times I can talk to the club to get them to realise that you know don't go chasing the new fan at the expense of the existing fans. There's nothing wrong with expanding the fan base. I love the idea that more people support City than ever before and all that goes on with that. But don't forget the fans who've been going for a long time and maybe I'm going for a long time, but the ones who fill the stadium because that's actually where the English league is so good. The supporters, the, the banter, all the things that go on. It's a big part of the game, as you were saying before, Tony. You need the atmosphere and the fans in the ground for it to be the spectacle that it is. Let me bring us on to another subject now, which is the expansion of the North Stand. I just wonder where we're up to on that, what you've been told in any of the capacities, whether it be infrastructure, timing, the layout of the new stand, whether there's going to be boxes in it, because I know that's been a bit of a debate. So what, what do you know about how things are going with that stand? Um, the, what I can tell you is that the 1894 group that Tony referenced earlier on, um, we pulled a meeting together. We asked for the meeting, City Matters, to be able to talk to the club, not just us, because as I say, we wanted to get other people in the room. So we managed, so we, 1894 came along to that. And as you know, 
they're independent of the club and really they're not they 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 really they always say they're not too political they're there to get the atmosphere going and to get the banners up and get all the that kind of thing but they were in the room and they weren't happy with some elements of what the club were proposing for the north stand um and so they've told them what they think and the club have promised to go away and try and uh, make some changes to make uh make it more so acceptable if you want to call it to the 1894 Pretty much everybody seems to want this new North Stand to become our new popular end, whatever you want to call it. Um, it'll be not quite like the Spurs one, but similar because it'll have two sweeping tiers with one very big tier at the top. That That's already bedded in as a design. But, you know, things like, are there going to be any boxes? Where are the boxes going to be? Are they going to be in the middle of the stand, which breaks up the atmosphere and that kind of thing? So some of the details are still being worked out, I believe, but it was as a result of this meeting. So the meeting was definitely worth having. And 1894 were, were as you might imagine, pretty robust uh, in telling the club what they thought. Was it all on time? Is it likely to open? I mean, we're two and a half years from now, I was it? I've not, I, I, if, I, if I could tell you, I would. I've not heard anything to say that anything's been delayed. It's it's one of these things that we're, they've done a consultation on uh, on the North Stand, all the supporters can join. But as I said to them at the time, it's a bit like they call it, don't they? You know, everybody, everybody's in favour of motherhood and apple pie, aren't they? Do you want the bigger stadium? Yes. Do you want it to be a fantastic new stand that's a popular end? Yes. You know, nearly everybody's behind the whole idea. It's just about making sure that ticket prices are affordable, probably. That's going to come down the track. Uh, and 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 to make sure the design lends itself to a popular end, it's it's the final opportunity in that sta stadium to create something that could become a bit of a you know like the Borussia Dortmund yellow wall or whatever you want to call it, a, a proper kind of end for the city fans to all gather in who want to jump out and sing and shout kind of thing. I'm when I'm way past that at my age. <laughs> when the south stand was extended, um, I don't think any of the people who were in that stand actually had to move. Uh, so clever was the building structure. It will it be the same at the north stand? Then has that been talked about? Yeah, it. it, it I won't. I, I don't think we can say hand on heart. Nobody will have to move, but but quite a lot of people won't have to move. You know, you know, it's not knocking the stand down. Every has to move and then come back in. So I, I believe the building process will allow them to keep the existing seats for as long as possible. And the impact will be on as few fans as possible. Yeah, the club are pretty keen to do that for revenue as much as anything else, trying to keep the stadium at um, a bigger capacity as possible. I'm sure they're going to kind of build behind it. So things like getting in and out. Be, I mean, there's a roof at the moment over those people in the North Stand. Is there any danger that at any point it's going to be roofless and they're going to be exposed yeah. to the elements? I, I, I'm not an expert on it, but it wouldn't surprise me if, the, if that happens at some point. Obviously, I've been told they're going to try and keep people in their seats for as long as possible and that their moves will be kept to a minimum for obvious reasons. The other big concern, of course, is the fact that the new co-op live arena is going to open in April, May or whatever. And although that isn't directly related to the North Stand, it is at that end of the ground and there's going to be a lot of people now coming out of that arena once matches are on when we know that despite some people claiming that the two things would never clash, it's going to be clashing quite a lot, actually. Um, as, how, how's, how are talks going about trying to manage that? Well, 
as I understand, uh, it's the thing I'm most concerned about, to be honest, transport at the stadium, because the capacity of the stadium is going up by, is it 7,000 or 6,500? And then when the co-op live opens, that's another 23,000 people when it's full. I agree with you. There's bound to be clashes. The club, the club, the club to get planning permission or the people behind the music venue was all done together. So they presented proposals that said they'd manage the start times and finish times to minimise these. But I agree with you. You know, we've already seen a match can be moved from one day to another with four days notice. Never mind Champions League games on a Wednesday night that are going to come down the track. Um, there's been an announcement today by Metrolink. They're extending Metrolink services to the ed- direct to the Etihad. So that's a step in the right direction. I must admit, I didn't see that coming. We've been asking. I've seen uh, it. It's yeah. um, basically they're going to carry on the train that goes from Altrincham to Piccadilly. It's going to carry on uh, to the stadium um, and it's going to be mainly nights and weekends. Yeah. So they're um, responding to either things that were agreed in terms of the planning permission, whatever. What what that means in terms of impact, we'll only see when, when it's introduced. I don't think there's any exact dates or whatever, but yeah, definitely it's it's, it's a step in the right direction. Can I just yeah. clarify that? Does, does that mean that the tram that goes, so there's trams that go Altrincham to Bury, for example, are you talking about trams going from Altrincham now and terminating at the Etihad, or are you talking about a railway line or some new structure? So it's just no. extra capacity base. So what, what I read was that there are going to be increased services from Bury to the Etihad and from Altrincham that currently go to Piccadilly, which will go through Piccadilly to the to the Etihad. So I think it that should... means more trains on the Berry line and yeah. the train that stops at Piccadilly on the Altrincham uh, Droylston line carrying on. So they're obviously looking at trying to plan something which requires uh, manpower to be available in evenings and weekends, but it, it probably will be you know every day of the week in the in the evening and. And the same for for we. So you're using the word tram. Uh, sorry, train, and you re- really tram. mean tram, tram, aren't you? Yeah, tram. Yeah. Sorry, tram. It's That's just his age. <laughs> it's, it's, it's only to do with the Metrolink service. This. Yeah, yeah. But, tram. But at the moment, the contract that Metrolink have is to provide a 12-minute service on the Ashton line. It's got nothing to do with the stadium. The stadium's just a stop on the line. So if they put extra trams on, almost like specials, that's almost done as a favour, basically. Although Metrolink do it, it's not something that's part of the contract and not part of the service level agreement. So the big change, I think, is it becomes part of the service level agreement to have more trams at these different times. So it's not just for the stadium, it's for the co-op live. So they've got, they could have four concerts over during the week, couldn't they? Um, so it's, so you're right, it's going to be evening services. When they've got more trams available, presumably they take up other lines. So, you know, the Eccles line might, uh, reducing service so they can start reallocating trams. So they'll do more in the evening and they're going to do more at the weekends and they are going to be direct services from places like Altrincham. So the other thing that does, it stops people having to change as much because you lose time when people change a tram. So at the moment, if you live anywhere on the Altrincham line, at some point you've got to change and that's, you know, slows things down and is more open. So it is a step in the right direction. It is good. It's whether the capacity is enough to make enough of a difference once we add in all these new people. But hey, it's uh, I'm, I'm pleased. I didn't I didn't think that was going to happen. I must admit, I think it's very positive. What about car parking? 
it, it suggests, just to say, it suggests, though, that there's a commitment from the co-op arena to be holding events probably four or five days per week. Uh, otherwise, it's unsustainable just using the football club as a... They've, as already, a, they've already committed to a minimum of four a week. But there you go. So it's yeah. very, very easy for the for the commercial centre. Yeah. Yeah. And it's car parking coming along. I mean, I, I naively perhaps thought that once the gasometer came down, that would be converted into a car park. There might be sort of multi-stories like rather than just the one-level tarmac car park and that whole area where the orange car park is now, which I know for a while was the ground settling because they had those vents for methane, etc. But I, I, I assumed that at some point something more substantial and bigger would be would I know there'd still be an infrastructure argument about how do they all get away after the game, but bigger capacity. Is that happening at all? I can jump in on that one a little bit um, because I've been told by the club with that orange car park is that they're limited as to what they can do because they don't actually own that bit of the line there. That's the council. So there is a slight issue with whatever the club might want to do, what they can actually do. Uh, Mark, I don't know if that's what you've heard as well, but that's essentially what the club have told me. I've not, I've not heard anything that tells me there's going to be more parking. I think if anything, everybody's going in an opposite direction in terms of transport and how people get to games. Oh. Uh, get I mean, to games and get to the sorry to the music venue more, more to the point. There's three things though that I've heard over here, and I think that I just want to pick up on just in terms of my skepticism, I suppose. Um, one is the transport for the expanded capacity. I don't think it's going to get any better. We might get an extra tram here and there. But look, we know fans leave 10 minutes beforehand um, to be well to help them get home because of transport, regardless of the time of day. Um, when it comes to the atmosphere in the ground, um, well, you know, the impact it's going to have on that, I think that's down to... A couple of things, really. I think, you know, we can have a great atmosphere if we were to play Liverpool, United, Arsenal. But then come Huddersfield, you can hear a pin drop. You know, we've how many times do you hear the chant for football in a library and whatever else? And that's not nothing. That isn't anything the club are doing because it's the same fans or should be in terms of the seasonals that go. So why is the atmosphere different from one game to the next? I hear, I hear this all the time and I don't buy it. So if you, I was at Newcastle the other day, apparently the noisiest place in the whole of Premier League you couldn't hear him for about 45 minutes at a game in the middle because we had the ball for all that time. The matches in England ebb and flow going, mm. going to accord, according to what's going on on the pitch, I think. And even Liverpool with its so-called fantastic atmosphere, I know mates of mine who've been there for other games who say exactly the same. It can be dead as a dodo if it's nil-nil at home to Palace. So it kind of depends a little bit. Our grounds are classic for that. That yeah. Real Madrid game was the noisiest I've ever known the Etihad. Oh, definitely. And in the same season, we had Pep complaining about the atmosphere around Christmas. So well, it kind of comes up on his comment after the Everton game. I don't know if anybody else heard it when he said uh, about the away fans. Uh, again, he mentioned, you know, well, of course we went across to thank them. Our away fans are the best. Wish that we had them at the home or something along those lines. And again, you know, he, he was mentioned, and it's not the first time he's mentioned that. Um, so I do think that plays a part of it. But my last point on the expansion is I think. We're naive as a fan base if we think there isn't going to be any form of hospitality or any form of um, expensive seats in that new stand because the club is a business and the business, they know with this expansion from what I've heard is this is the last one they can do. So we'll be at max capacity. 
And if that's the case, they're going to they're looking at it to say, well, how do we get the most amount of money as we can from a match day? Because, yeah, it's not live or die for the club for the match day revenue, but it's a big impact on what they get because we won't always win the Champions League every year to get that prize money. We're not always going to get the share of you know the Premier League and all that. So they need that as just kind of subsidising everything else. And they are always going to look at how can we get more money out of the seats we currently have. And in my opinion, a large part of that is going to be whether it's a box, a new hospitality suite or whatever, they're going to do that um, or what they class as fan experiences where they'll say, oh, we'll get you a play or not. They will do it because in their eyes as a business, it's how they're making the most money for the asset they've got, which is a seat to a game. Um, so, yeah, they will try and appease us fans and say, look, out of these thousands of seats, we're only taking a couple of hundred but those couple of hundred would generally be out of touch for most match-going fans based on the price. But you know, and I know, Mark, that, that lots of fans have drawn the conclusion from, I think it was the CEO of the group who said what Matt, what uh, Tony's just mentioned, you know, about once we've maximised the number of people in the ground, the next thing is to get the most money out of them. And I've heard a lot of people, um, normal people like us, saying that inevitably means normal ticket prices are going to go up. Is that been talked about by City Matters at all? Is that a concern? We, t- we talk to them all the time about nearly every meeting I bring up the price of tickets, but the price of tickets is not one thing. So the price of a one-off ticket to see Burnley at home on a Wednesday night, let's call it the least attractive fixture, and I'm not even having to go at Burnley, it's a Wednesday night in January, is still very similar in price to the Chelsea game. It's not much different. The differentials, I'm always astonished for these games. But what the club will say is that we will probably sell out that game. So Burnley won't be... Burnley have returned... 900 tickets, I think. It might be more because they won't sell out. So we're now selling the top tier above the Burnley fans to City fans. But nearly tickets in all the other areas of the ground, there's tens and twenties in different blocks at the most. So their argument is that there's a real demand for tickets, standard tickets, what they call general admission. So we'll, we'll sell them even at the price that we're charging now. And these other areas where they call it hospitality, but it's not sat down having a chicken dinner and a and a box. So, you know, it's like Kits Bar and places like that, where you do pay a premium, you get a very good seat, and you'll get access to a bar and a couple of drinks and stuff, and maybe a parking space. They sell really well. The club tell I'm, I when they told me about their plans in this regard, I didn't think it'd work at all. Who's going to pay 150 quid just for one match? But people do. So they're saying that as it's as we sit here right now, all of these they call them products, of course, all of these different types of ticket and products and things sell really well and they can't get enough of it. So I think Tony's dead right. The new development of the North Star uh, of the North Star is bound to have some of that kind of ticket and, and facility in it. I think what we would like them to do is to not do it in the North Stand and spread it elsewhere. So rather than have it taking up 200 of these new seats for this new type of corporate, we'd rather they didn't do that and maybe reallocated seats in other parts of the ground so we could really make that stand a general admission season ticket holder stand. That's what we'd like them to do. Whether they do now or not, I don't know. We've made our representations and 1894, like I said before, were very good actually at coming making the point. Well, if you know, 
we don't want 200 seats in the middle of the north stand empty after half time because they're all supping on a pint of lager or a or a or a canapé or whatever. We want all those seats filled. So they made a pretty strong um, strong point in that regard. So we're we're hoping they've listened to 1894 and to us. But I, I, we are a victim of our success with with ticket sales, and you know. We we didn't always fill our forty eight thousand seater stadium when we first moved in. We should probably be glad that we're probably going to fill a sixty thousand seater stadium for every match. Well, to bring this podcast to a conclusion because we've we've had a good good chat about all these things. I'm actually going to ask Andy and Tony whether I've missed something because you know I tend to set the agenda because I'm leading the podcast and maybe I've missed you know an elephant in the room as they say. So. Do you two want to ask Mark anything or talk about something that we've not talked about, which is something that's of interest to you and you think other fans off the field rather than on the field? Yeah, I'd like to make a a, a point um, which we haven't discussed. <clears throat> you know, working for a German company, the Germans have these fantastic words, these compounded words that you know, end up being like Klambaipulkringa, you know, they're that long. And uh, there's one translated about an animal that doesn't exist, and it's called the egg-laying wool milk pig. <laughs> right? And I think that's got to be the question asked of the club is, do you want egg, wool, milk, pig? What do you want? Because I think this is where we're torn. Whilst the, whilst the club is so successful on the pitch, it's pretty much um, a free-for-all for revenue potential. That's that's clear. But then contradicting that, we you know, we're not just at City, but at Liverpool as well and other clubs. The changes they've made to their grounds have dulled the atmosphere. And, and there's very clear evidence that atmosphere creates performance. So here we go again. What do you want? What is it that you actually want? And if you look at the the clubs who've been around a while that people are crawling over the walls to get in in the European context, they're not always the most atmospheric grounds. Particularly the Spanish teams, I'm thinking here, maybe in Germany because of the different way they treat fans and the different way that clubs are owned. It's different. But you tend to get this big end somewhere, like at Dortmund, like at Bayern Munich, where... Exactly what Mark's just said. Pack them in one end, make it cheap, make it rowdy, and make it impact. You know, on on the atmosphere. That's what you want. And I think Tottenham have done a good job of that at their stadium, whilst accommodating the revenue per seat potential of the remainder of the stadium. So somebody smart got thinking about how to do that at White Hart Lane, and at least when we've been there. It's been a tough place to score a bloody goal. Never mind win a match. So I think there's got to be some clear strategy about what it what do we want the ground and the fans in it to deliver for the for the for the result that, that we're hoping for. And if it's revenue driven, then then it will be football in a library. In the end, it will it will mean that, as Mark said. People like me who sit in a nice seat will be asked to vacate that and go into the North Stand for a discounted price for a year whilst they develop the area I sit in 
into an enhanced revenue per seat area. And that will go for some people who maybe have sat in the lower sections of, of, of the stadium, either side of the centre line. They're probably counting the days till they get the letter. Same in the middle tier, where you've got the Joes and 9320s and the citizens even. You know, there's a huge potential there for the club to develop revenue per seat by shoving people who are seasonals into, into the North Stand. So it'd be very helpful if they would actually come out and say exactly what it is that we want from stadium strategy. You know, that's a discussion maybe that could be on the agenda with City Matters is say, you know, we're grown up people, we understand the way of the world. What is it in order of priority that the club actually wants? Uh, because it's absolutely hypocritical for the manager and any player to be waving their arms at the stands when people are looking through the match on their phones, having paid 500 quid in the in the merchandising, you know, before the game, and have got absolutely zero interest in creating atmosphere. And you've got to get people to I was told, by the way, just recently by somebody off the record, uh, so I won't name who it was, that there is a plan to introduce, I think I may have mentioned on the podcast before, a system where if you've got an app, on, a certain app on your phone, um, that you can point it at a player while they're actually playing the game and get their... How, how far they've run, what they had for breakfast and, and all sorts of other things like that on the phone, which is only going to encourage um, that type of waving your phone around and not really being a supporter behaviour even more, which only feeds into your your question. You know, I, I witnessed, I, you know, because the Wi-Fi at the club is so good, I witnessed the Muppet uh, filming the game and broadcasting it to his mates. In, in a in a place in a foreign land. I didn't even know what language he spoke, and I'm pretty well travelled. So there's somebody actually broadcasting the game live through his phone, through the Wi-Fi, back to his pals with his running commentary, annoying everybody. Now it was just out of range for me to grab him by the ears and somebody else did it before me. So you know it's ridiculous to think that there are people there are people going there to say spending their 70, 80, 90 quid or whatever, or 200 quid. And and they're using it as their one-off chance to do something very selfishly. And, and, and again, the club has to manage and steward that, which they don't do. And then we go into the discussion about away fans in home ends and access and all the rest of it. So it's got to come down to which part of the egg laying wool milk pig do you want? Yeah, because unfortunately uh... you can't have them all. I think I think the club make no bones about, and he, and um, he's called Rule, who's like one of the chief operating officers, has made it absolutely clear that the one area we don't compete with our rivals in is match day revenue. Now, there's two reasons for that. The first is relatively our season tickets are relatively cheap per match compared to other clubs of a similar because we've got that stature now. We're not little city anymore, so. Our seat, and remember, 36,000 season ticket holders we got, miles more than Liverpool. Liverpool on 20 odd, I think. Um, only a bit less than United with their stadium at 70 odd thousand. So the comparators, if you ask them, not I'm not making this point as a support in it. So they they want to grow the match day revenue. They've grown it so far by increasing the number of match day members. That's gone up 400 percent in the last two years. And they're just people who pay 30 quid a year. To be able to be able to buy tickets, so they've got the revenues like that going up. They've increased the number of tickets where they the pre, we'll call them premium seats, maybe 
where you know you get a pint of, you get a pint and you get a parking space and pay 150 pounds and they've also through electronic ticketing made it possible for season ticket holders who are not going to sell the club sell the ticket back to the club which their club give you a 90 a 19th refund and then sell it at a match day price so they make money on it so they are increasing the revenues all the time for match day the point is balance i don't have a problem with the club going down that route and being creative it's it's clever it's actually very clever it's very creative but the, there's an upside and a downside to everything that you do like that in business andy i'm sure you'll know more than me but whenever you make these decisions sometimes you're killing the you know you're killing the golden goose aren't you with your with your clever ways so you increase you increase your income but over time that income could easily fall when Pep, you know one day when pep's not the manager one day when we're not winning champions league so i i think it's all about balance and that's why i try and hold the feet to the fire about season ticket holders as much don't forget the season ticket holders because they'll be there in 10 years time regardless of results so as, as if they if they if they keep the balance i have no problem with them being creative and trying to increase the reviews. I do get it. Like you said, Andy, we're all grown up. We get that it's got to be done. And that's why I think this North Stand needs to be designed to be a popular end rather than just seen as a way of just increasing revenue, just increasing revenue. I think it would be helpful if, if there could be some kind of accommodation, whether it's determined by loyalty or otherwise, that when a seasoned cardholder, say, as, as being, you know, up in the high loyalty point area comes to not being able to go to matches any longer or, or God forbid, they, they pass away. That, that, and I mentioned this on the podcast the last time I was on. That shouldn't just disappear into the abyss. You should be able to gift that to somebody who matters to you. And, and today there are people whose, whose kids and grandkids are, str- are going to struggle to, um, you know, to benefit from dad or granddad or grandma or grand or mum's generosity so, so somewhere around that and, and and i don't know whether it's an open subject or not but i think it's something that a lot of people who are in their sort of 60s are talking about that i hear you know what happens when um you know i've got friends who've got grandmothers going to the u.s masters who are 117 you know so we all be, can be creative if we want to be so yeah. I think some transparency around that would be helpful. It's a vicious cycle, though, because... Sorry, Mark. It's a vicious cycle, though, because as a fan base, with your seasonal, you don't ever want that to go up because it's an increased cost to you. But if that doesn't go up, the club are then going, well, we can't affect this huge fan base here that have all got seasonals, 30,000 plus. So where are we going to get our revenue from? I know we're going to increase it and get our revenue from the one-off sales, the match days, the hospitalities. So when that seasonal then unfortunately may pass away for example they'll go we're not going to put that back into seasonal we're going to make more money on it so it is a vicious cycle for us as fans so do we accept that seasonals have to go up to keep us and seasonals there or do we then say well actually no we keep our prices as it is and we just have to then accept the other end of that is increased you know not hospitalities but experiences and that side of it um, it's a difficult one, but I think the final point for me really is one that very rare, well, I think it gets spoken about once a year really, um, and that's merchandise. We touched mentioned it earlier, um, just in passing, but I've got a three-year-old. I was looking to, I mean, I'm taking her to her first game, couldn't get a ticket for a men's game, so uh, for her, 
something for the both of us to go. So I'm taking her to a, the women's derby in March. But to buy her a full kit at three years old, um, the away kit, for example, um, is £50. When she's five, currently, um, at the prices as they are, to buy her a full kit, it's £100 for one year's kit. It's extortionate, the price of kits. And that is one of the biggest costs uh, in terms of fans, if you, you know, wherever you are, especially, uh, you know, by buying for a child as a parent, you know, she wants it. They want it. Um, you know, I'm doing my job right. She's a City fan. She, you know, uh, <laughs> she, she, she's into City. She wants to see it. But unless I'm going to go to, and I know obviously um, fans do, you know, you're going to look online potentially and get it £10 elsewhere, China, for example. Um, but where's the... Again, there's nothing there from that I hear about with regards to City Matters or anything when it comes to that side of it. And that's not even looking at the cost of a men's shirt for an adult. As I say, um, from five years old, it's £100 for the full kit. Um, it's £60 just for the shirt on its own. Um, and yeah, you know, it's just extortionate, the price of kits um, for both adults and kids, really. Hold that thought, hold that thought. Let me say, uh, I'm going to get Mark come in and answer that question in a second. Uh, let me just thank you again to AMR Development UK for their support of the podcast and Counting King, who are tax specialists, particularly in R&D. Look them up, support them. They'll save you a lot of money if you contact them. And thank you very much to Andy and Tony. So I'm going to go to Mark, uh, Mark now for the last comment because we've done a, a lot on this and... Um, well, we'll have eaten into the whole of this winter break if we're not careful with the length of this podcast. So so I'm, with the big thanks to you, Mark, for coming on, as usual, to, to tell us. Uh, there's Tony's question. And anything else you want to chuck in at this point that you think is relevant, the floor is yours, sir. Yeah, I couldn't agree more about kit prices. I think uh, nearly every football club can be accused of um, overcharging for kits. And I, 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 I don't buy them as a, as a result. I think it's terrible. And if you know, it must be really bad when you're really desperate to buy one for your, your son or your daughter because the pressure would be on. I'm, uh, I've am i dodged the bullet on children, so I haven't got that problem. Um, in terms of City Matters and what it does, believe me, we work so... I'm not just saying me. The people on it work so hard. and I I deal with City nearly every single day. It feels like a full-time job. I work harder than I've ever worked. And there's so many things we can talk to them about whether it's to do with individual matches when things don't go right about ticketing and, and scheduling. Um, but the, we, we, but as, as I said earlier on, we're on the inside. So we end up, it's, it's not always well known what we do. Maybe we should talk more about what we do get up to. Well, you're more, more than welcome to talk about it anytime you want. You know that Mark. Um, and thanks very much for your time. So keep up the good work. I do know, how hard you work. I don't see quite the others as much as I see you, but my God, you must have no sleep. Um, so thank you for what you do. I know you're a proper fan and you're a proper battler for, for us fans. So thank you so much for what you do. Um, and thanks to everybody for listening as usual. And uh, we'll come back with another uh, podcast. Next match, of course, is that, uh, as we're recording this, is that Tottenham game on a Friday night in the FA Cup. So on the Sunday evening after that, we'll record a new podcast to look back on that game and to look ahead to Burnley and Brentford and all the stuff to come in the second half of the season. Um, obviously, we've not talked about the football tonight, but uh, it's not going badly at the moment, really, is it? Um, that mm -hmm. Kevin De Bruyne is all right, isn't he? Um, anyway, thanks for listening. 
Uh, make sure you share, tell everybody else about the podcast. Make sure you listen to the last one as well. Richard Dunn was fantastic on the Lad post, uh, podcast. So just let me leave you with this thought, the thought I always leave you with, because it's so, so true, isn't it? Isn't it great to be a blue? Thank you.